0: So this is this is uh, bat work right here. Bat work is a lot of waiting around. Um, it definitely requires patience um, for what we're doing. When you're out mist netting, it's the same way. Um, there's plenty of nights I go out and sit there for three or four hours in the night and, and never catch a bat. So, but it's so cool when you catch one. It just it totally makes it worth it. Yeah. So. So it makes it worth going through all the work to set up the nets and do all that stuff. And and even if you don't get one, um, eventually when you do get one, it's just the coolest thing.
1: Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus is a show about the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. We want this show to highlight the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field. To show that people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. This episode is about Drew Stokes. We had the pleasure of meeting with Drew earlier this summer where we got to meet him while he was doing some of his field work. So let's let Drew tell us exactly what it is that he does.
0: Uh, my title is wildlife biologist and I work for the San Diego Natural History Museum. So I work with animals and specifically, I work with bats. I mostly do bat research. That's kind of what my specialty is. Um, I also have a lot of experience with reptiles and amphibians. And so that's kind of like my secondary research interest. So it's it's bats and herps, basically. And so but sometimes I'm asked to help do small mammal trapping or, you know, set cameras for large mammals and stuff like that. So, I participate in other research projects, but
1: I mostly work with bats. So then we asked Drew, why bats? What is it about bats that gets him so excited? Yeah.
0: yeah. I think bats are, they're kind of like the coolest of all those type of animals in my opinion. I've always thought bats are just super cool animals and I think the fact that they are out at night and, and you don't really get lots of good looks at them. They're kind of difficult to see um, and, and especially get your hands on. I think that makes them that much more interesting. Um, I think when I'm out doing my research and, and I actually catch a bat, for instance, in a mist net, it could be the most common bat species there is. It is still just the coolest experience, um, you know, from when I first started doing it doing it as, as, you know, compared to now even, so 18 years later, it is still the coolest thing to catch a bat. So it's, yeah. it's literally like, almost like getting your hands on on some type
1: of you know fairy tale animal in a way. How does this get started? How does one get into bats?
0: I have been into unusual type animals since I was a little kid. Um, so like my parents basically told me that I was grabbing insects and things like that before I could even walk. And so I definitely it was definitely something that was in me. And then you know as I got a little bit older as a kid. I um, was very much a young naturalist. I actually grew up in England, and so that's kind of where I had my first experiences, and so I spent a lot of time um, looking for critters, basically, as a kid. Uh, My dad would play golf, he'd take me out playing golf. I would spend
1: most of the time on the sides of the fairways looking for lizards and snakes and stuff like that. Given that his family is originally from San Diego, this is a bit of an atypical childhood. So we wanted to know, how did that influence him And who were his heroes growing up in England? A lot of David Attenborough
0: shows. David Attenborough was definitely my biggest influence, my childhood hero for sure. Um, I wanted to grow up to be basically David Attenborough. That interest and that passion in in animals and conservation, um, I really kind of got that from, from David Attenborough.
1: Taking that inspiration into the field, we asked Drew, where are we and what are we doing tonight?
0: We are out here to do a bat survey. We're out at the Point Loma Peninsula. There's this large body of fresh water at one of the facilities here, and bats are generally attracted to fresh water sources for both drinking and because it also attracts insects. And so we think that there's a chance that bats are going to show up to come to this pool to drink and or forage. And so... We're setting up with some electronic bat detector devices, which are basically micro- microphones designed to record the bat echolocation calls, and when you record the echolocation calls, you can go back
1: to the lab and look at the calls, and you can identify the bat species that you have recorded. So we're out on the Point Loma Peninsula looking for bats, but we wanted to know why is this place special? What is it about San Diego that makes it so special when it comes to bats? San Diego is a great place for biology.
0: It's got, um, like you said, high biodiversity. Basically, it's got a lot of different um, climates and different topography and different vegetation types. And so you basically go from the coast, you know, through the in- inland valleys and foothills and up and over the mountains, down the transition zone into the desert, and you've got all those different habitats contained within the county. So then that lends itself to having a high diversity of animals, including bats. And so in San Diego County, there are actually 22 species of bats. Um, of the 25 that you find in the state of California, of the 45 that you find in North America. So San Diego County has about half of the bat species that you find in the entire nation, just in our county has an idea of, of pretty high diversity. And so where we are tonight, we're actually at this large source of fresh water, so this would actually be a place where they could probably get their um,
1: liquid that they need to drink. So I'm going to repeat that statistic. San Diego County has half the bat species that exist in the United States. I would say that this is a good place to be a bat biologist. But what are the two main factors that San Diego provides for these bat species? So those are kind of the two factors that are determining,
0: you know, how many bats you're going to find in a particular area. The roosting substrate and then how much foraging habitat is there for X number of bats.
1: Roosting substrate is where bats live. Bats have the ability to roost in many different places such as trees, cliff sides, or even bridges, just to name a few. So to get even more specific, what is so special about Point Loma when it comes to bats?
0: thing is you've got some species that um, forage very long distances each night. And so they could be potentially roosting um, in inland areas and are most likely making the commute from those inland areas to get out here to forage. And so that's just part of those species of ecology. They fly far. They cover a lot of ground. Point Loma is this awesome chunk of natural habitat. So even though they might have to get across kind of an ocean of urbanization, they have the ability to because they can fly far
1: so they can make it out here, and then once they get out
0: here, they've got a good place to forage.
1: Point Loma is a bit of an urban island that provides the right conditions for many different types of bats. A convergence zone for three different types of bats. So those kind of three things, the migratory bats, the resident bats,
0: and these bats that are making these long-distance commutes from inland through sites, they all contribute to this species assemblage that you find at Point Loma.
1: So given the diversity and variety of bats that you can find in Point Loma, we asked Drew to give us an example of one of these species and how it interacts with the ecology of Point Loma, as well as other conservation efforts going on in the area there is a bat species that potentially occurs out here
0: that has been found fairly close to here historically, um, called the Mexican long-tongued bat, that is a nectar feeder. And as you know, Point Loma has a lot of Shaw's agaves. In fact, they probably have one of the largest populations in in all of the county. And, and, you know, Shaw's agave is thought to be a declining plant and potentially a plant in trouble.
1: Shaw's agave are a potential species in peril in San Diego County. They're a desert type looking plant that have really thick broad green leaves that have really pointy spikes at the end of each leaf, but they also shoot this inflorescence or stalk up into the air where their flowers can bloom anywhere between eight and fifteen feet into the air. The Mexican long-tongued bat,
0: it's not known yet, but is thought to be a potential pollinator of, of the Shah's agave. So other pollinator bat species or, or other nectivorous species in other parts um, are definitely known um, important pollinators of those
1: plants. So we could have that going on out here at Point Loma. So that is another research question that's ongoing. It'd be really important to know whether or not the bats are interacting with the Shah agave because that would impact both conservation efforts for bats and Shah's agave. But as we're sitting in front of this large body of fresh water, we're asking Drew, what are we looking for?
0: One bat species found in San Diego County actually kind of specializes in foraging right over the surface of the water. And so they're kind of feeding on what you would call aquatic emergent insects who have a, you know, kind of a larval form that's aquatic and then they basically hatch out from the surface of the water and take flight as an adult. And those bats are there to kind of pick them off during their few first seconds of their flying life stage. Too bad for them. And then any other insects that might kind of be hovering around the surface of the water, you often will see those bats if you shine a bright flashlight or a spotlight across the surface of the water and they are, will be working the surface of the water and they kind of look like, almost like ice skaters, um, kind of skating around an ice rink. So they do various um, patterns, um, fairly kind of broad turns, not like they're making necessarily tight maneuvers unless they are homing in on an insect briefly.
1: So as we're standing there using the spotlight looking for ice skating bats, we wanted to know what it's like being a bat biologist. What is the work like? So this is this is uh, bat work right here.
0: Bat work is a lot of waiting around. Um, it definitely requires patience um, for what we're doing. When you're out mist netting, it's the same way. Um, there's plenty of nights I go out and sit there for three or four hours in the night and, and never catch a bat. So, but it's so cool when you catch one. It just it totally makes it worth it. Yeah. So. So it makes it worth going through all the work to set up the nets and do all that stuff. And, and even if you don't get one, yeah. um, eventually when you do get one, it's just the coolest thing.
1: So. But doing bat monitoring work, you can't doze off. You have to be focused the entire time. Yeah. Yep. Surprisingly. Yeah. So it does kind of seem like we're just
0: standing around, but no, actually I'm, I'm I'm very aware. I'm looking the whole time, looking for bats. I'm listening the whole time, even though we're talking. So it's obviously um, not as easy, but, but if we weren't having this conversation, then yes, I would be sitting very quietly looking where I can, you know, as long as light is available and then definitely listening. Because like I said, we are listening for the one bat species in particular, the Western mastiff that's got the audible call. And I think the more you work at night, the, the you realize you're, you're kind of your awareness might actually even be
1: heightened. And as we're standing there talking about bat work and how exciting it is to actually find a bat. Oh, there's a bat.
0: On cue. So yeah, so we picked up a bat. Its call looks like a California
1: myotis. So we definitely heard a noise, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was. You heard it on both, didn't your
0: detector pick it up? Yeah, Yeah, so both detectors, yeah, so you heard it on both. Mm -hmm. So that one has a a speaker that outputs the call and and this, you know, it's the iPhone speaker. So yeah, I think we heard it on both.
1: Because bat calls are inaudible to the human ear for the most part, these instruments convert their calls into an audible sound that comes through the speakers so that you know when a bat is flying overhead. I think it's a California myotis.
0: Actually, it could be that bat I was just talking about called the Yuma myotis. They have very similar calls. And so I just happened to see the call as it came in real time. And so I got a brief look at it. So now I'd be able to go back to the office download the call and get a better look, and then I could actually make the, the real determination. But it's one of those two species. And we think we picked up both of those species out here, and especially the California myotas. Um, it's already known from the peninsula, and we recorded it in, in the past. It's the most likely bat that it is, um, but I'll know when I, when I look at the call in more detail. But actually, that's pretty cool. Believe it or not, just to even get a single bat picked up is exciting here in this kind of situation. And so um, with even though there's, you know, a fair number of bats been found out here, the, the, the actual numbers of bats is probably very low. And so just the fact that we could even get a glimpse of one. And, and actually, when I mean glimpse, I mean, a, a brief recording vocalization. Um, that that's even that is exciting. And and to me, that's part of the allure of bats, is that they are so difficult to study. You get such brief little bits of information about them on any given night out in the field that there's something about, I think, that challenge and and almost like mystery of the animal that, that I think is super appealing from a biologist's standpoint.
1: So as we're standing out there, we hear a couple more bats go over. But as this one flies over, he knows immediately what species it is.
0: So there was another bat pass and again another Mexican free tailed bat. How is he able to identify these species so quickly? I I know what the calls look like, and so this detector that I'm using on the iPhone, you know, you can see what the call looks like. It's coming in real time, and so I'm familiar enough with the call that when I see it on the screen here, I recognize what it is. And it's
1: generally a common species.
0: It's a pretty common species, yeah. Actually, it's probably the most abundant bat um, in the southwestern United States.
1: If these species really are as blind as, well, a bat, and they have to use echolocation to hunt their prey, How precise is this sense?
0: They're, yeah, they're that sensitive. They're they're even more sensitive. I I don't know exactly how you necessarily test it, but I I know that, for instance, there's a fishing bat and and people have tested it, that the the fishing bat can detect, you know, like a little hair floating on the surface of
1: the water. So it turns out that they're not really that blind at all. They can use their echolocation to find the tiniest of insects, and apparently even fish, right underneath the surface.
0: Goes for fish, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the fishing bat. It's it's down in Baja. Oh, cool. um, there's there's several fishing bat species, but the one I'm talking about um, that I'm most familiar with is the one that's kind of in Baja. So, wow. Um, yep. That's a weird yeah, they have the <laughs> very large um, hind feet with long claw, hook-like claws, and so basically they're flying around the surface of the water. They detect the fish at the surface of the water. They swoop down and they drag their claws behind them and rake those fish out of the water.
1: So with this available technology and the high diversity of bat species in San Diego, we wanted to know the implications of this technology and non-professionals using it.
0: Yeah, and it depends on, I think, on what you're studying too. Definitely what the bat calls the bat vocalizations um, is there's so much variation in the bat vocalizations and and it's actually like the more and longer you do it, the more variation see and the more you realize um, it's kind of like you you realize how much you actually don't know you thought you knew but you actually don't know the more that you look at it you, you made the comment like oh it's really easy now people can just go out and buy these bat detectors and people are doing that um, but that does not suddenly then make them competent
1: bat biologists so it doesn't matter how good the technology is you need the people and their knowledge can't replace the people, yeah. so
0: hopefully that's always going to be the case. So it, it's good to be able to, to do passive and remote monitoring, but there's nothing like being there on the spot, I think, real time.
1: So with his nearly 20 years of experience in this field, and a potential emergence of a technological era of conservation work, we asked him, what does he see as his role in this field? How does he fit into the world?
0: I'm going to put this in a way from kind of from my viewpoint and a lot of the people that I work with, kind of the way I think that we see what we do. I'm not sure to exactly answer the question, but what I feel like my role is and, and, and my colleague's role is that we are there to basically research the natural world around us to find out information about the natural world. And for me, it's about bats. Find out that information that we can provide to people who are making important decisions about how the land is being used. And so for instance, we often work on, or I will often work on military bases. And so I go out there and study the bats and I figure out how the bats are using the landscape and then you know give that information over to the natural resource managers. And so then they can use that information to help make decisions about how the landscape is going to be used, maybe areas to avoid, to protect bats or whatever it may be. And so it's I think it's about finding a balance between what people want to do, but at the same time, minimizing impacts to the environment when they do those things. And so I don't think you can stop progress. You can't stop these things that are happening, development, Military training, whatever it may be, you know, we're going to do those things. But those things can be done in an informed way such that, um, you know, heavy impacts to the environment are avoided. And so that's what I feel like my role is. And that's kind of what makes me feel good about what I do. Um, It's working with those people. It's not working against them. It's very much working with those people to basically help them do what they want to do. Um, but in a way that's, you know, sensitive to the environment.
1: It's about creating the relationships, the collaborations, between the people doing the research and the decision makers to find some sort of a balance between the two. And here he gives us a perfect example of something he's been working on recently. One
0: example, actually is a project I've been working on recently, there's a particular bridge that is occupied by a bat colony. Actually, there's several of those bridges that I've worked on in the last few years. These bridges that are worked on, or that are, I'm sorry, that are occupied by bat colonies, and work needs to be done on those bridges. So whether it's Caltrans needs to widen a road and therefore widen the bridge, or the local power company needs to Run transmission lines along the side of a bridge or underneath a bridge, in one example. um, That I have been there to help identify the fact that there's bats in these bridges, you know, what type of bats they are, how the bridges are being used, and the most important thing is during what seasons the bridges are being used by the bats. And so once you get an idea of the way the bridges are being used in the timing of it. For instance, a particular bridge may be occupied by the bats from March through October. And you can provide that information to them. Then the work can be done around the bats. So so they let the bats do their thing. When the bats leave at the end of the summer or in the fall, um, then they get in and do the work they need to do. Those, those would be situations where the bats are being protected because of the research. So that's, that's what I meant by finding the balance. Yeah. So, so the balance is met. They get their work done. The bats keep you know, living and getting to use the bridge. They're not impacted heavily. So it's, ultimately it's a win-win situation. And it was the, the bat biologists who you know stepped in and kind of mediated the process to make it work for both the people doing the work and
1: So with all of his years of experience and the role he's found himself playing, we wanted to know how he felt about the future of the conservation movement and why. I feel pretty good about it. I actually think that... Um, optimistic.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely optimistic because I think that there's a lot of good biologists doing a lot of good work in San Diego County, and I think all of them are playing a particular role in, in um, conservation. And there's a lot more attention now, I think, on the biodiversity of San Diego County and um, conservation issues. And so I think things are actually looking good from that standpoint.
1: I'd like to thank the National Park Service, the Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy, especially the Natural Resource Team. Special thanks to Drew Stokes for letting us follow him around all night. Producer for this episode is myself and Taylor Parker. If you'd like to find out more information about this episode, such as photos and show notes, check us out at pelicanus.org. P-E-L-E-C-A-N-U-S dot We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Pelicanus Radio. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.